Okay, good evening everyone, uh, and welcome to tonight's roundtable. Kiss of the Dragon, China's geoeconomic strategy in a changing economic order. My name is Arne Westad. I'm going to be chairing the proceedings tonight. I hope we'll get as much interaction as we possibly can in terms of discussion, because this is an important issue in terms of international affairs, broadly speaking, and particularly, of course, for the East Asian, the broader uh, East Asian region. For those of you, and I'm instructed to tell, tell this now before we start rather than later, for those of you who tweet, the hashtag for this one is hashtag LSE China. Now, we have a wonderful panel with us um, tonight in order to celebrate the launch of LSE Ideas, China's geoeconomic strategy, which is for sale outside or online, if you want to. Um, LSE Ideas does a number of special reports and working papers. I think this is what everyone around Ideas have been saying. This is our best one yet. Um, it has a fabulous group of people who are uh, in on discussing the um, geoeconomic strategy that China has, or indeed whether it has a geoeconomic strategy in a few cases. The uh, three people who are here tonight, who I'll introduce shortly, are stars, of course, in the firmament of those who participate in setting up this report. But we also have a number of other very good people who have contributed to the report. And let me thank the people in Ideas who put this report together. Um, first and foremost, Cherry, um, Nick Kitchen, who is the Ideas report editor, Indira Endaya, who is the uh, director of um, the um, series, and, and it's been a, a, a fabulous experience really to work with them in putting this report together. Well, I hope you had a chance to, to pick it up and to read it and to comment on it, if you like, um, uh, on our website or on other websites or just in discussion. Let me introduce the speakers for tonight just very briefly to speak initially for about 15, 20 minutes or so, and then we will move to the discussion. Now, on my right is Guy de Jonquier, who is a senior fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy. He's worked on international economic policy, Asia's political economy. He's worked as an editor uh, at the Financial Times. He's travelled very, very widely in that context, particularly within the region, but also, also elsewhere. And he's one of the most interesting people to listen to in terms of China's economic future. We also have Linda Ye, who's sitting right next to me on the left, who's the director of the China Growth Center and a fellow in economics at the University of Oxford. And she focuses on economic and business, business issues, particularly on the macro economy. Um, there's a book called Macroeconomics that focuses on the UK, US, EU, and the global economy. And her task today will, of course, be to put China and China's growth within that larger global framework. And then, not in any political sense, but in a physical sense up here to my extreme left, is uh, Jonathan Fenwick, who well, is the... Um, well, you, 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 you can get to prove that later on if you want to, Jonathan, <laughs> particularly by going last tonight. Jonathan is an old friend of LSE Ideas. He is the China Director at um, Trusted Sources, which is a research service. He's also the author of a new book on contemporary China, a fantastic new book on contemporary China that I strongly recommend, Tiger Head, Snake Tales. 
And before he started off Trusted Sources, uh, Jonathan was one of the most respected journalists around here and in East Asia, among other things, the editor of the South China Morning Post and the editor of the Observer. So we really have a stellar team up here tonight to discuss uh, China's uh, geoeconomic strategy. We're going to start with Guy, then Linda, and Jonathan. We'll have some more general questions, and then we'll open up for the audience. So, Guy, please. Anna, thank you. Thank you for your very generous and, in my case, completely undeserved introduction. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, it won't be news to you that uh, a new power is rising in the East, uh, propelled by three decades of supercharged growth. It has a GDP only se second only to the US, impressive modern infrastructure, a world-beating manufacturing sector that has humbled Western industries, a big trade surplus, and bulging foreign exchange reserves. In Washington, Brussels, and other national capitals around the world, Predictions are multiplying anxiously that uh, this country is soon going to take over the world. All of these things are said of China today, but the country I'm talking about is actually Japan in the 1980s and 1990s. And I'm drawing the parallel not in order to predict that China is destined to follow Japan into stagnation and marginalization, although it's not inconceivable that that might happen, but to make two other points. One is, that, um, is the danger of extrapolations. Um, extrapolations of unstoppable trends can be wrong because they're always based on the past and they really don't tell us that much about the future. The other is that economic and financial strength are not necessarily the same thing as international power. Now, that's not the current conventional wisdom in much of the world. Uh, which holds that global power is inexorably shifting eastward. Um, that perception is, I think, at best only half correct. Undeniably, anemic growth, massive debt, have dented both the West's self-confidence and its international influence, while at the same time it's emboldened China uh, to stand up more forcefully for its own interests and resist external pressures on it to change its behavior. And, of course, in a world of debtors, well-heeled creditors tend to get listened to. But it doesn't follow that China is set to become the world's dominant power, masterfully reshaping the international order and imposing its writ on other nations. Indeed, the ev evidence suggests that China possesses no such agenda, nor the capacity to implement it on any scale it's much easier to discern what China does not want from the rest of the world than what it does. Before examining why, um, I think it's worth, first of all, pointing out that while China is big economically, it isn't that big. Its emergence on the global scene is often compared to that of the United States 100 years ago. In 1912, the US had by far the world's biggest GDP, more than twice the size of Britain and Germany, its closest rivals combined. Today, on the most generous measure, China's economy is still only two-thirds the size of the US, and it's increasingly likely that its, its growth rate uh, will slow in the future. Even more important, a century ago, the US had by far the world's highest income per head. Today, <coughs> uh, China's income 
per head today is barely one-sixth of the US level and one-tenth if you do it on a nominal exchange rate basis. And it ranks about number 90 in the World League table. Mm. It's far poorer now than the US was then, which inevitably influences its policy priorities, and that's why it's important. And of these, the overriding one is to continue increasing national prosperity and living standards, the pursuit of which is the bedrock of Chinese rulers' popular legitimacy and hold on power. Now, in the last 20 years, that pursuit has accelerated China's integration with the world economy through exports, through inward investment, technology transfer, and through its insatiable appetite for raw materials. Much has been said about how China has changed the world economy. Less fully appreciated, perhaps, is how far the world economy has changed China. Indeed, in a number of ways, China still depends more for its prosperity on the rest of the world, and particularly on industrialized economies, than the other way around. The West share of Chinese exports is shrinking. It's uh, shrunk faster since the crisis began. But nonetheless, the West is still China's biggest market abroad, roughly half total of its exports. China, on the other hand, last year just nosed ahead of Switzerland to become the EU's biggest export market. And the preponderance of raw materials and capital goods in its imports, which is something like 80%, limits the demand that it contributes directly to Western economies other than Germany. (coughs) Now, that dependence has placed a premium on maintaining stability in China's international economic relations because its leaders know that aggressive and disruptive actions uh, would risk rebounding on it very quickly. The urge to throw its weight around has, so far at least, been restrained by awareness that doing so would uh, jeopardize its own prosperity. Mm. Broadly speaking, economic rationalism has acted as a check on the impulsive, saber-rattling nationalism that always lurks close to the surface in China. Mm. Of course, there have been exceptions. Uh, China's aggressive, uh, menacing outbursts towards its Asian neighbors in 2010 and its punitive embargo on exports of rare earths to Japan, uh, two cases in point. And it's still too early to tell whether such tactics will become more common in the future. However, in both cases, these actions actually proved either counterproductive or ineffectual. Furthermore, they have not stopped Beijing, Tokyo, and Seoul from pushing ahead with plans for a free trade agreement or uh, Japan and China uh, increasingly talking about cooperation in the field of monetary policy. Only today there was an announcement uh, on currency, on bilateral currencies. Um, Now, enthusiasts of the China Rules the World School often cite as evidence two examples of China's supposed might. One is its global quest for natural resources. This is often portrayed as a prime example of a concerted state-led strategy to further China's national advantage. In reality, it's been heavily influenced by the um, particular ambitions of state-owned companies, which are forced by scarce resources and price controls at home to look abroad for their profitable growth. It's also questionable how big are the benefits that uh, this... um, global resources uh, quest uh, uh, have brought to China. 
Remarkably few of the resources that are extracted abroad by Chinese companies are actually ever shipped back directly to China, as little as 10% in the case of crude oil. The rest is sold or swapped on world markets. And as latecomers, Chinese companies necessarily uh, have had to focus on regions where their established international competitors were not already entrenched or are barred from operating. Since most resources are fungible, in other words, they can be traded uh, very easily, they're substitutable, the result is less to lock up supplies than to augment the margin, uh, at the margin, uh, the uh, quantities available to the whole world. Now, the other source of China's supposed power that I want to talk about is financial, and above all, its foreign exchange reserves, $3.2 trillion. Actually, these reflect policy weaknesses uh, at least as much as they do economic success. To a considerable extent, they have been accumulated because of high domestic savings, running about 50% of GDP in China, and uh, a system of financial repression mm. that depresses Chinese living standards and leads to a forced transfer of resources from households to the government and corporate sector for investments of, uh, how can I put it, widely varying value. That is the very opposite of the economic rebalancing that Beijing has been saying now for several years that it's determined to achieve. In practice, the reserves also afford China only limited political leverage abroad, and that's for two reasons. First one is because public opinion and policy are fixated on preserving the reserve's real value. The second is because there are very few financial markets large and liquid enough to absorb more than $3 trillion, and they are mainly located in the West and denominated in US dollars and euros. That's made China an extremely cautious foreign investor. Its chief concern is uh, obtaining secure prudential returns on its financial assets, not in deploying them aggressively as a political weapon, something that could seriously damage its wealth by destabilizing international markets. In a very real sense, the sheer scale of those assets has locked China into the global financial system. It's also created some quite difficult dilemmas look at the euro crisis. On the one hand, China has a big chunk of its reserves in euros. No one knows exactly how much, maybe about a fifth. Um, and that gives it a huge stake in the survival of the single currency. On the other hand, it is understandably reluctant to yield to European pleas to increase its exposure by purchasing more debt from troubled and, in several cases, insolvent eurozone for, uh, sovereign borrowers. Not an easy choice to make. Now, Beijing has sought to reduce its dependence on the dollar and the euro by taking gradual steps to internationalize the renminbi. But I think what they can achieve will be limited as long as tight capital controls keep the renminbi unconvertible. Hmm. However, moving to full convertibility would impose massive strains on the country's fairly primitive and ossified financial system, unless the latter were fundamentally overhauled and bondized. Now, that may, of course, be the real agenda of the reformers in places like the People's Bank of China who are promoting internationalization. 
But if it is, they face powerful resistance from the vested interests that benefit from the current financial system. The state-owned enterprises for whom it provides cheap capital on preferential terms, the banks for which it guarantees fat margins, um, as well as from conservatives in the political establishment who argue that liberalization would weaken the party's levers of control. And then there's a small matter of where all those uh, Ferraris might come from. Um, these in microcosm are the lines along which battle is now raging within the party ahead of the uh, leadership transition uh, later this year or early next. And it would take a braver or cleverer man than I am to, to bet on the outcome. I'd like to mention briefly three other reasons why I think that China uh, is unlikely to exercise real global power and leadership soon. First of all, effective leaders need willing followers. And China has few close or reliable allies, and there are some pretty rum ones in there like North Korea. Secondly, the opacity of its government, its growing military strength, the unpredictability of its actions, and the state's large role in the economy all inspire a degree of mistrust and suspicion abroad, even, or perhaps I should say most particularly, among its own neighbors. Third, China possesses, I think, very little soft power in the Joseph Nye sense of the word, or the term. Effective soft power involves projecting national values and aspirations that other people in other countries identify with and wish to share. But China's image today is of an often harsh and turbulent society, consumed by American-style materialism, but largely lacking America's once fabled idealism. I have yet to hear anybody, other than members of the Chinese ethnic diaspora, say they yearn to live the Chinese dream. So my conclusion is this. China has shown it can shake the world, and I think will continue to do so. It has yet to show that it's capable of shaping it as well. Thank you very much, Guy. Now, of course, we should have had my dear friend and colleague Danny Kua to really respond to you on this, but he's busy trying to handle Krugman somewhere else in the school at, at the moment. So you'll have to do with me later on. <laughs> Linda, please. Uh, good evening. Um, in my 15 minutes, um, I'm going to focus a bit on whether or not China has a geoeconomic strategy. So, geoeconomics is supposed to refer to when an economic policy is deployed for a strategic purpose. So, now those of you who uh, have dealt with politicians anywhere in the world might understand why I'm a little bit unsure that there is any coherent strategy <laughs> for most governments um, for one particular effect. So the way I'm going to structure my comments to try and think about at least the issues that question raises is in two parts. The first part is um, I'm going to try and answer the question, what does China want? Because clearly that would form the backdrop to whatever it is they hope to gain on the global stage by their economic policies. Um, and then I'm going to ask a second question. I'll probably regret asking it the minute I say it, which is, um, can China save the euro? <laughs> and, and for those of you who are thinking, 
can anyone say the euro? Um, that would be along the right lines, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that sounds like a different lecture. Um, so what I want to talk a bit about um, is the China effect, the China price. And then I want to move a little bit into uh, what China wants in the coming decades, to the extent to which it's discernible. And then again, coming back to what that means for the global sphere. So the China effect generally refers to the China price. So that's the notion that over the past 15 years, the prices of global manufactured goods have fallen, and China has had a very strong deflationary impact through its global integration. Now, this is a, um, I always think that all sounded a little bit technical. So here's my, <laughs> and this is not even my simplification. This is actually from Richard Freeman, who's also a good friend of the school. Mm. Richard Freeman from Harvard, he puts it this way. Um, you know, Linda, they doubled the global labor force. <laughs> That's pretty good. So basically what he's saying is that in the early 1990s, the global labor force was about one and a half billion people. The integration of China turning outward after 1992 added about 700 million workers to that number. And then if you add that to India turning outward after its 1991 balance of payments crisis, and then the reintegration of Eastern Europe, you taken the global labor force from one and a half to three billion workers. And the implication of that is it drives down wages because that's associated obviously with more workers. It actually also drove down the cost of capital because of diminishing returns to capital, a lot more labor to add to it. And that's why you had very strong deflationary global uh, pressures pushing down prices around the world. So that China effect and the China price is one of the contributors to the so-called uh, great moderation of the last 15 years in the last since the early 1990s. You can see it in many ways, including simply um, the real increase in foreign direct investment that went to these countries. It's exponential from the early 1990s. However, there's another side to the China effect and or perhaps, I'm not trying to coin anything here, but the new China price, um, which is at some point, and Alan Greenspan actually pointed this out, is that you have now very fast-growing de uh, developing countries which are industrializing or reindustrializing in China's case. So their demand for commodities actually exerts upward prices on global supply prices, so particularly in commodities. So in other words, more demand from China, from Southeast Asia, from India, from Europe will push up the demand for commodities pushing up that price. So now you have two competing effects in terms of the China effect. And in this decade, perhaps, um, with rising wages in China, you could actually end up with an upward price effect um, that's outweighing some of the initial deflationary impact. So that's sort of the, the China effect in its most, I think, what I think of as a, a basic definitional sense, the integration of China, that's the effect. So far, not a lot about what China wants and whether this is really strategic. 
So let me move a little bit into um, what China wants and why this picture is now changing. So I've already begun to hint at it in terms of the upward push on commodities, the, um, the investment of Chinese companies um, into uh, these areas around the world. But I want to phrase it in a broader sense um, in terms of why you see more Chinese investments, because it's not actually just in commodities. If you break down Chinese outward investment over the past few years, two-thirds of it is actually in the financial sector. Mm. It's a little unfortunate, I'm told, <laughs> because of the, uh, <laughs> the lack of returns, but, um, but, it, um, but that's the backdrop. So China's investments are changing, and it mirrors what's going on in China itself. So China is changing, and this is the big change. China has grown well for 30 years at a pace which is pretty much unprecedented for a major economy. Um, most economies grow well for about 20 years, and then 30 years is just, it's a long, long time. And um, I can think of one other country in the world and that's done that, um, but uh, that country has one and a half million people and lots and lots of diamonds, um, Botswana. Um, but unless you have lots and lots of diamonds, it's not going to be a good model. Um, so for China's case, what they're thinking about is the next 30 years. So I was lucky enough to uh, advise the World Bank on the China 2030 plan and the, uh, on uh, the NDRC on the 12th five-year plan, and the focus is very clear. No one thinks China's going to grow as fast as it did in the previous 30 years over the next 30 years. So what China's aim is now is to overcome the middle-income country trap. So in other words, countries grow very well, as I say, usually after 20 years, and then they slow down. East Asia, mid-60s to mid-80s. Uh, Soviet Union, mid-70s to mid-50s to mid-70s. You know, there's a lot of those kinds of examples. So normally when a country hits about 14,000 U.S. dollars on a PPP basis, its economy starts to slow down considerably. And China hits that by 2020. Even if the growth rate slows down to 7%, which is a 30% drop, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing a, a simple math here because clearly it's exponential growth, so it's not quite 30%. If it slows from 10% to 7%, its economy will still double in size in 10 years. So you take the number 70, you divide it by the growth rate, and that gives you the number of years an economy doubles in size. Um, those of you working it out for Britain, let's be generous, 1%. So our incomes will double in 70 years. Yay. Um, so, so, but what the, so basically, so China will hit that um, level. So right now it's about 7,000 US dollars. It'll hit this 14,000 US dollar level by about 2020. So the big question is why the World Bank report with the State Council was timed to 2030 is because it's about how to get to the stages of joining the ranks of rich countries. And that's actually very difficult. There's only been a handful of countries in the post-war period that have actually done that. And actually, they're in East Asia. So I'm talking about South Korea. I'm talking about Singapore, Japan. And they've all overcome the middle-income country trap that's actually trapped countries in Latin America, for instance, who kind of hit that level but don't join the ranks of the rich. And there's one thing they do have in common. There's lots of things they have, though, which are not in common. But there's one thing they do share in common, which is they have globally competitive companies with brand names that we all recognize and that we buy. 
And it has come about um, through uh, you know, a process of acquisition. I'm just going to tell my favorite anecdote here, and I do apologize if you haven't seen the film. But um, if any of you have seen Back to the Future, uh, with Michael J. Fox and um, the DeLorean. Yeah, it's a great film. Um, but when Michael J. Fox goes back to the 1950s and to try to reconcile his parents, um, for those of you who haven't seen this, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but um, the, so basically, he goes back to the 50s. He meets a mad scientist who says, tell me, what is the future like? And uh, Michael J. Fox says, oh, well, um, our president, this is an 80s film, is Ronald Reagan. And the scientist goes, You've got a B-movie actor as your president? Oh, my gosh. What else is going on in the 80s? And then Michael J. Fox says, oh, and uh, Japan produces the best stuff on Earth. That's even worse. That's just not possible. You're just making this up. You're not from the future. And so, you know, Japan over about 30 years became one of the most trusted brands coming from a place where they were basically just manufacturers. And that's what China wants to do. And this brings me to the kind of why it is you see this big surge of investment coming out of China. It's because ultimately they want to create world-beating firms. And the way to do it is to fuel uh, overseas investment, outward investment. It's called the going global strategy. It was launched in 2000, and of course, as with all things in China, it takes a little while, and the very first commercial outward investment occurred in 2003-2004 when the Taiwanese company TCL purchased Francis Thompson brand. And then in 2005, there was a very high-profile acquisition of IB, the IBM PC's uh, business, along with the use of the brand name for five years by the Chinese company Lenovo. That started a wave of the going or the going global. And this is why you have more commercial outward investments coming from China. <coughs> However, and this is the tricky part, and Guy did mention this as well, China doesn't have an open capital account. These investments are, in a sense, vetted and uh, by the state because the capital account is closed. So by definition, um, if you are private, investment isn't done on a free basis. And then secondly, some of the investment, because of the aim of the state to promote global champions, is also funded by the state. So it's not just state-owned enterprises going abroad, it's also the funding coming from the state. And this obviously raises a lot of issues in terms of possible backlash against Chinese investment. Um, so this is where you're beginning to see how the China effect is now changing and why it is there is a different, I suppose, uh, color or tenor to viewing the China effect in this way? Are they coming in and buying up assets? Are they distorting the playing field? And is this a way for China, especially when it invests in places like Africa or invests in Southeast Asia or affects invest in Europe to have an influence beyond the pure economic? And I think that's where some of these issues get raised. Um, I want to focus, um, and I hope that's what we can uh, really talk about, because I think I've sort of given you a flavor of the kind of rebalancing that is going on in China. That is, this is what they're aiming to do. Um, I don't want to get too technical, but there is a macroeconomic benefit as well, because if you have, as China still does, a trade surplus, um, you could end up with a massive amount of reserves, which they'd have, um, buying government debt of all sorts um, to uh, basically keep their exchange rate where it roughly is. 
is. Now, you don't have to buy government debt. You could actually use the reserve and buy real assets. And that's another reason why China has this strategy, is to passively diversify um, its reserves out of government debt. They're just a they're touch worried about the Americans and um, maybe a little bit worried about Europe as well. And, uh, and so that, I think, is sort of my framework, um, just to kind of uh, talk through, uh, can China save the euro? because a lot of the Chinese investment has come into Europe. That is actually their motivation. So I think that actually gives you a little bit of glimpse as to why it is um, China uh, isn't going to save the euro. <laughs> um, a lot of their investments are motivated by good valuations, as it is for lots of investors. So um, if they invest in places like Greece and they buy a ports, um, if they go and they invest in different European countries like and France or Germany um, competing for good terms to offer the Chinese. And that is, in a sense, what fits with their overall strategy. So buying government debt isn't really sort of in this kind of strategy. And then you have to layer on top of that. Um, do you really want to buy any peripheral government debt these days? Um, and um, and so I think that's the kind of I think that's the kind of bigger picture in terms of the strategy. But let me kind of wrap up with just a few thoughts in terms of whether or not um, this going out strategy, China's aims over the next 10, 20, 30 years, is going to have a significant impact in terms of the global economy. Um, my take on that is that I have no idea. <laughs> Um, you know, it's uh, perhaps they will. I mean, my gut feeling is yes. I think China's rise is very internally driven, and one of the uh, one of the big changes we'll see around the world is that China, through its own. Uh, you know, drive to try and improve the livelihoods of its people are going to do this kind of strategy to secure commodities to create multinational companies. And the argument is that perhaps they should take on other responsibilities as well. But I'm going to end up with this point, which is if China achieves all of this and it rebalances itself and it uh, does all these hard reforms, um, will it actually rebalance the world economy? Mm. The global imbalances question, which is at the very forefront of the G20 meeting. My answer there is absolutely not. <laughs> um, you know, it's still the case that global imbalances is mostly driven by the most indebted country in the world, which is the United States. And global imbalances have been with us for actually quite a long time. And what China's doing so far is that it is clearly contributing to some of the rebalancing. But as with the very first thing I said to you when we started, it's very much a macroeconomic identity. If there's less demand for exports, China exports less. And they are going to rebalance more towards domestic demand. If China is going to focus on moving outward investment and reducing purchases of government debt, like U.S. Treasuries, then that's going to reduce the demand for U.S. Treasuries, which is going to have less of a dampening effect on the U.S. yield curve uh, that many uh, in the Western world uh, talked about when they got into this credit bubble. So both sides are actually very definitional. But the bigger economy still by far, and the one really driving a lot of the deficits that we see, is still the United States. And it faces a number of challenges in terms of its own rebalancing. Um, so I'm going to stop there, and I, I look forward to, uh, to chatting with you. And for, for those of you thinking um, she hasn't really answered the question about is it deliberate, the answer is I don't know, but I look forward to hearing your thoughts and talking about it. So. <laughs> Thank you.
Excellent. Thank you, Linda. I forgot to mention, of course, that Linda has lived a very significant part of her intellectual life here at the school. And although she is now mostly left us for Oxford, uh, but still coming back from time to time. It is indeed great to have you back, Linda. Jonathan, please. Thank you, Arnie. Um, well, first of all, I thank everybody for coming in on such a fine evening to listen to us, for having <coughs> passed up the opportunity to hear Paul Krugman say, no doubt, why China must revalue the yuan, a lost, a lost cause if I've ever heard one, but it makes good columns, and particularly some people sitting down there who are hearing me for the second time today. That's, that's, that's real persistence. <laughs> no, I was doing a lunchtime talk, which sat somewhere else. Um, well, Arnie has uh, classified me in advance as on the extreme left, which of course is completely wrong, um, and I, I will now see you into China, because when I was at The Economist, when people would ask you where you stood politically. The reply was a typically economist reply, we belong to the extreme center. And I find myself in roughly that position uh, as regards China. I don't think uh, in the title of one book we are witnessing the coming collapse of China, which that particular book first uh, prophesied what? A decade ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it this year? Is it next year, Gordon? We wonder. Nor do I believe uh, that we're going to see the day when China rules the world. Partly because China doesn't want to rule the world, apart from else. It's not an imperial. The word rule is, is, is completely wrong and here. That's an ex FT colleague advice, Well, no, 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 We've jousted in the past. Um, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, and uh, that means, as already several guy and Linda both uh, alluded to, that the basic thing about China, I think, is that it is caught in a strange uh, quandary. It's that there are all kinds of aspects or reasons why we're in a situation globally with China which has never existed before. Never before has a country with still, what, 120 million people classified as living in relative poverty had the world's second biggest economy. Never before has that kind of country uh, been the principal funder of the federal deficit of the world's richest country, etc., uh, etc. Et One can go on forever because it's the nature of, I think, the, the difference of China. I'm not a believer in... Chinese exceptionalism as such, but China is a pretty unusual place, it must be said, partly because of the sheer speed and scale of its growth and the conditions, this strange state commercial uh, system under which it works. Uh, and it is always the case, I think, in looking at China, and we're looking at China's foreign relations mainly tonight, that you have to start at home. That's the case with probably most uh, countries. But in China, I think foreign policy and strat external strategy is driven even more than so in other countries by domestic uh, considerations and by the most basic of political domestic considerations, which is not economic but is political. Deng Xiaoping didn't wake up one morning in 1978, having won the power struggle after Mao's death, open an economics textbook. In my day, it was Samuelson. I don't know who people read these days. It's Linda. Linda, yeah. Linda right. <laughs> and say, oh, this is rather interesting, what Linda, Professor, here is writing. Um, maybe we'll give, a, give uh, market economics a spin, you know, try. Uh, Deng, uh, people around Deng may have uh, thought that, Zhao and others. Uh, but Deng's basic uh, vision or insight was that China was in a terrible state after 30 years of Mao. You'd had the Great Leap Forward, the Great Famine, and then 10 years of the Cultural Revolution. Not only had that brought China down 
to a pretty awful situation. Uh, but also it threatened the Communist Party. And Deng had been a communist since his teenage days and was dedicated to the Communist Party. Uh, you know, the way he took endless purges, endless rebuffs uh, under Mao is really that of somebody who is a, a zealot in, in religious terms for the party. And Deng saw that uh, economic growth uh, could lift China again to the status of a great power and that he could make the Communist Party the sole vehicle by which that happened and therefore ensure the continuation of one-party rule. Uh, yes, he sent the tanks in <clears throat> on June the 4th, uh, 1989, but I mean, that was a particularly tragic and dramatic incident. But really, all through, uh, to save the party, um, but all through, Deng's aim was to use economic policy to uh, achieve this basic political um, uh, result, the continued power of the Communist Party. And that remains the basis of everything in China today. Major economic decisions, when I know China is a very decentralized place, so I don't want to entirely swallow the idea of a unitary state that moves in lockstep uh, run by Tom Friedman's enlightened one-party bureaucrats. It doesn't actually work like that. Um, but at the same time, the nine men, and they are all men, and they all have wonderful heads of hair, as I've remarked, which I'm deeply jealous of, uh, who make up the standing committee of the Politburo. In the end, it's a political decision. All decisions are made on that political basis. And that applies all through to, to different areas. So we come to foreign policy <clears throat> and China's uh, relations with the rest of the world. Uh, quite a lot of what I would say has already been said by the other two speakers. That's always the price of coming last, but uh, you can say what they haven't said too. You can say advantage. something quite outrageous if you want to at what? the end, just to stir things. <laughs> All right, I'll say that. But the title of the, the piece I wrote in, in this uh, book here uh, was Does China Have a Foreign Policy? That may seem uh, a bit provocative, uh, or you might, on the other hand, answer, does any country really have a, a clear foreign policy these days? But I think uh, China, the, the lack of clear, coherent foreign policy from China is even more so than uh, for a lot of other countries, and it's particularly important given China's economic weight and also the relationships with the rest of the world, which, as Guy absolutely rightly pointed out, go two ways. This isn't a one-way street out of China. This is both ways, and China's interdependence with the rest of the world uh, means that relationships are often very difficult uh, to deal with, to frame, uh, with a regime in Beijing, which, apart from a few specific uh, aspects, I think doesn't have a really coherent foreign policy guide uh, gu view. And I'm aware that since Arnie is the world's greatest expert on this subject, I am indeed tre tre treading on very perilous ground indeed here. Um, China defines its core interests. These are uh, non-interference in its domestic affairs, read Tibet, Xinjiang and human rights, uh, the preservation of its existing <coughs> system, the right in, if it so wishes, to use force to recover uh, Taiwan and 
in some of the state media recently, uh, another core interest is ownership of the two million square miles of the South China Sea, based on a map which was drawn up, I believe, in 1944, uh, which is a, yet another example, as with Tibetan Xinjiang, of the communist regime taking over the claims uh, that date back to imperial uh, or nationalist uh, days. Then, as uh, Guy and Linda have, have, have mentioned, the other foreign policy driver is access to raw materials. Um, China has been responsible in large part for the hard commodity super cycle uh, that we've seen over the last decade or so. Uh, myself, I think that super, the super part of that cycle uh, is coming or has come or very shortly will come to an end. It may well be replaced by another super cycle in soft commodities and food because China's agriculture simply cannot keep up with the demand which has been spurred by growth, by huge wage increases, by the emergence of the middle class and which the regime has to satisfy because you can't suddenly tell the middle class uh, citizens of Shanghai, sorry, you can't eat pizzas anymore. Uh, it's something you can't take away, but agriculture cannot keep up with it. So reserves, whether it's uh, foreign, foreign resources, resources from abroad, whether hard or soft commodities, will still continue to be very important. China has to take an example, 20% of the world's population, but only about 8% of the world's arable land and 7% of the world's renewable water supplies. And both uh, land and water supply in China is falling quite fast. I mean, in the case of water, very fast indeed. Um, so there, there, is, there, there are these things which, if you like, in a materialist way, uh, China wants. It wants to keep other people out of interfering in its, its eternal affairs, uh, and it wants to be able to get by what it wants, even if, as Guy says, quite a lot of that is actually traded on world markets rather than finding its way back to the People's Republic. But beyond that, you know, if China is indeed going to rule the world, if China is indeed the second great superpower in the world, where are China's foreign policy initiatives? You can't find them. Over something like Libya or Syria recently, China muddles its, tries to muddle its way through. It does one thing, it does the other. On Libya, it didn't veto the uh, no-fly zone. And then when uh, President Sarkozy, as he then was, uh, was visiting China, Hu Jintao uh, tore him off a strip for having actually carried through with the bombing of Libya. Equally over Syria, it's all over the place, China. In Sudan, it's trying to balance uh, different interests uh, there, not entirely uh, successfully. So um, you get this uh, feeling that for all the fabled statecraft, which Henry Kissinger uh, is so bemused by, uh, of China, it actually isn't very good at foreign relations, partly because it's never had to be very good at foreign relations, seeing itself largely uh, on its own. I mean, Kissinger in his book on China um, spends page after page uh, lauding the late 19th century statecraft of use the barbarians to fight the barbarians. Well, it, it's a very nice idea on paper, but it never actually worked. Um, it worked a little with Japan when, when the British and French forced the Japanese to give up some of their gains after the War of 1894. But when the foreigners, when the barbarians fought each other, it wasn't in Asia or China's doing, it was in the First World War. Uh, so I don't actually get that, really. Um, and if you look at foreign policy today, we don't know, or I 
person, I say, I don't know, <laughs> but then somebody knows somewhere maybe, who actually runs Chinese foreign policy. You've got the foreign ministry that by all uh, views that one can analysis of it is pretty weak in the power structure. Um, the power, such as it is, over forming foreign policy uh, belongs rather with Councillor Dai uh, as a member of the leading group of the Communist Party on foreign policy, not with the ambassadors or the foreign ministry people. Then you have lots of other interest groups now which are embedded in the Standing Committee of the Politburo uh, and the larger Politburo uh, under the present consensus kind of board system by which China is run. You've got the export lobby, you've got the heavy, uh, heavy industry lobby, the importers of iron ore, uh, etc., etc. You've got the PLA, you've got the ideologues who want to spread China's soft power with notable lack of success. Um, as I said to a Chinese ambassador who was uh, lamenting the fact that the West didn't lap up Chinese soft power and why were we all so hostile uh, one said you know well when you put the Nobel Peace Prize winner in jail for 11 years for advocating democracy that has something of an effect on your soft power um, uh, line but of course it's going on a Chinese company uh, Wanda Dalian uh, just bought the biggest American cinema distributor uh, an exhibitor but I'm not sure that it will show many PRC made films in it um, all through, I mean this is not to in any way demean or underrate Chinese culture which is obviously incredible and with an incredible history uh, and incredibly worthy um, of respect and is being translated more often in literature in the West but China doesn't sell itself uh, to the rest of the world. It doesn't have, I think, a way of selling itself to the rest of the world, except in terms of inducing shock and awe, taking huge billboards in uh, Times Square, paying for uh, overseas uh, broadcasts by CCTV, uh, etc. All this is throwing money at it, but doesn't necessarily earn you love or understanding. Uh, there was an interesting discussion on a website, web list, which Guy and myself are both on, uh, which mentioned something that I hadn't thought of before. Voice of America. I mean, people now poor mouth the Voice of America as uh, Voice of the Cold War, etc., etc. But I can remember as a boy, uh, a jazz-loving young boy in Birmingham, who was cut off from live jazz performances because American musicians were not allowed to come to, the, to, to Britain, and the BBC didn't really like jazz. I mean, Lord Reith would have not, uh, not have, uh, liked that. Well, I didn't live in Lord Reith's day, but anyway, uh, they were thinking. So you listen to Willis Conover on VOA every week, and it was a complete, I mean, this was your link with a world that you dreamed of being part of. I don't really see that, I'm afraid, um, happening with China. Uh, as I say, there are all these different uh, themes which I think um, undercut the idea of China having much of a coherent foreign policy. And if I just look briefly at the regional uh, issues, and I have a chart in, in my article here about uh, the uh, clashes in the South China Sea and with Japan and South Korea, which you'll have read about since the autumn of, of 2010, they were quite dramatic uh, in their way, and they were written up as being far more, even far more dramatic than they were. Uh, you, but it was mainly Chinese trawlers clashing with coast guards and or uh, oil exploration ships uh, off Vietnam and the Philippines. It was really pretty small stuff, pretty small beer, uh, and heightened in impact by the fact that I'm told that Arling will know whether this is so or not, or one of those myths about China, that all uh, Chinese trawlers or modern trawlers are part of the PLA naval militia. 
So they all carry guns, <laughs> and when the, when the Coast Guards come towards them, they go into this V-shaped naval uh, formation, which you see, which makes them look very threatening. But all this was pretty small stuff. It then opened the door, and this is a, an example of how you know, the, the foreign policy doesn't work and isn't organized. So you had these nationalists, you had great articles in Global Times, it's time the Filipinos got used to the sound of Chinese guns, uh, you know, these Vietnamese deserve a lesson, etc. <clears throat> well, last time I thought that, of course, China lost the war, uh, etc. Uh, but the, uh, when it actually came, what the result of this, very largely, was that it opened the way for President Obama's Pacific pivot. America came back uh, because all these countries wanted the American strategic umbrella, which has been the essential stabilizing fact in East Asia since 1945. Uh, and so Obama could make a lot of that. He tried on the trade front, which I don't think is going to work, but that specifically excludes China, but that's another matter. Um, and so you then had China going into reverse and starting to send cooperation uh, delegations to Vietnam, the Philippines, and elsewhere, and saying it's all lovey-dovey, and so on. So going back on the economic foot, where China is much, much stronger, both because regional powers uh, depend on the economic relationship with China, and because, as I think Guy said, uh, you can see the emergence of a Japan-South Korea-China zone uh, in East Asia, which will be extremely powerful uh, and extremely important. Um, but the point was when China got on to what it sees as, as more firm ground, the economy, that was all right. But when it try, goes into political areas or strategic or military or when the PLA shows off its only aircraft carrier on which planes can't even land for the moment and says we're standing up to America, it all f seems rather hollow and falls rather flat. So to conclude, I'd say, you know, Chinese statecraft, wonderful. Encyclopedia entries on it, uh, everybody admires it and so on. But in practical terms, if I can be, I was on a, a BBC radio start the week with the author of When China Rules the World, uh, who told me at the end that I should be more humble towards China. Well, if I can be unhumble at the moment, I think China needs to find a foreign policy. Now, with those Chinese trawlers, Jonathan, I mean, the latest information I have is that they are indeed, when they go with the East China Sea or to the South China Sea to fish, they are indeed armed. But then, of course, you never know with fish these days. So what you <laughs> end, up, end up again. As you heard, um, and in typical LSE style, we have a um, very skeptical, critical bunch up here uh, in terms of the presentation on China's ge geoeconomic strategy, and that's indeed how we wanted it to be. And there might be people in the audience who uh, are, are less skeptical with regard to this or, or may think differently. I just want to start with one very quick question to the, to the panel, and, and, and please be brief in responding to this. But I, I want to return us to the key issue that we're discussing here today, and that is, does China actually have a geoeconomic strategy? Because you all, the way I listen to you, I mean, you all answer that with a, with a kind of no but. I mean, Guy was saying China has great power but doesn't really know what to do with it. But it, I mean, it still has great power. It's great strength. Great strength. Which is slightly different. I mean, you're right on that. But I mean, still, great strength doesn't know what to do with it. Linda was saying, very interestingly, what really matters, at least in the short run, is probably the China effect more than what China is actually planning to do. And, and, and this is important because it means that, you know, whatever China wants to do, uh, there will be a very, very clear effect on others from now on. 
And then uh, Jonathan was saying that uh, there is a clear lack of foreign policy, at least in the specific context of today. I mean, not necessarily in terms of in terms of solution. So let me ask all three of you, and you can also respond very briefly to each other on this point. Does China have a geoeconomic strategy? Because so much of what is done elsewhere in the world, I mean, in Europe, in this country, and first and foremost in the United States, is based on the assumption that China knows what it wants in terms of a future uh, world and what the future world could could look like. That it does, even it, if it might, may be rudimentary, have a geoeconomic strategy. And it seems to me, for slightly different reasons, that all three of you answer that in the negative. Go ahead. Let's start with you. Very, well, very brief on this, and then we'll turn to the audience. Um, I suppose you would say maybe it's got two or three <laughs> geoeconomic <laughs> strategies, and that's precisely the problem. Yeah. I made this point about you know the distinction between rationalism, yeah. acting. Uh, according to what China sees as being its own best economic interests. And thank goodness it's played as it has, because there is, I think we've got, in many ways, the best of all possible worlds. It's far better that China should be concerned about enriching itself and improving the standard of living of its people than doing other things that one can imagine. But then again, you have, you have, you know, two, two or three other problems, certainly two. I mean, one clearly, there is within China a great sense of victimhood, as there is in many other Asian countries. Um, and uh, there are forces within China that feed on that. Mm. Um, that produces an element of unpredictability uh, within the system. Um, and we saw that you know, in late, from late 2010 onwards with these outbursts. Um, another problem is that there does seem to be an awful lot of disjuncture between different parts of the Chinese government. I mean, many, you know, the initial response, I think many people still believe that a lot of these incidents in the South China Sea were the PLA getting up and mm. brandishing swords and being nasty. Mm. Actually, most of the evidence we have, the PLA was hardly involved in that at all. Mm. That this was, to some extent, turf fighting between different agencies like the Coast Guard, who, like the same sort of agencies anywhere else in the world, are chiefly interested in power and budgets and jobs. And they thought they could make their mark and they could sort of pull one over on the other, their competitors in the mm. system. So I think there is this, this intrinsic instability, mm. which is very, very difficult for China to, uh, to manage. Mm. Um, I'm sort of reminded of Spider-Man. Um, those of you who haven't seen the movie, I again apologize. <laughs> <laughs> this is what economists do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, Your favorite films. <laughs> you do do some teaching as well. <laughs> well, this, this is what you are proving right now, exactly. You do do some teaching. Well, I could tell you about the well. Avengers film, but anyways, <laughs> let me move on. Um, <laughs> there was a line in Spider-Man <laughs> that with great power comes great responsibility. Mm said Peter Park. <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on to something more serious, which is um, for many of us who've been working on Chinese growth for a number of years, I think one of, the, um, one of the most difficult conversations that one can have is to really uh, re reform the Chinese growth concept or approach to thinking about it as being what economists would call a large open economy model. Mm -hmm. For those of you now hoping for the adventure metaphor, <laughs> yeah. so, it's, there it's still there, <laughs> that uh, a large open economy um, is essentially what China is. So its model so far is very export driven, and so therefore it's a small open economy model. And the, way, the reason I'm using this to um, answer Arne's question is because 
does China have a deliberate strategy to impose an external effect based on its growth uh, approach? I would actually say the way I would phrase it is that because China views itself as having a small open economy model, it doesn't actually fully take into account the external impact mm. of its growth approach. Mm. So if it were a large open economy, and that is what the United States is, um, then it would impact what economists call the terms of trade. Mm. So in other words, the terms of trade is the index between export and import prices. And a country which is big enough to affect the global terms of trade means that its demand, its supply, its investment, its exchange rate, its capital account, its financial market impacts global export-import prices. Mm. You can improve or deteriorate the global terms of trade. And that's what the United States is. But for China to go for 30 years on a model of growing by export-oriented, small open economy approach to growth, which is what the East Asian growth model is, it's a big leap to go from that to thinking of itself as being a very influential global player. And it's not just in economic terms, because once you start to affect those kinds of factors, mm. we are talking about a, a much bigger geopolitical effect. And this is where the geoeconomics becomes mm. more of a geopolitical decision, because this is a change in concept. And so that's why I think um, that there is, I think, a debate about the extent to which China should take greater account of its ultimate China effect on the world economy. Um, but I certainly agree that with the many uh, different uh, factions within China, um, it's often the case that um, the kind of disjuncture we see in the West in terms of policy is fully evident there. And I'll just conclude with an anecdote there, is that every time there's tensions between, say, China um, and Taiwan, um, you often get the political rhetoric Ra uh, ramped up, you you get a lot of wa flag waving and uh, I don't know, <laughs> moving of stuff that looks a bit scary onto the coasts. Um, and then at the same time, you would have the trade and the economy ministers saying to the business people, um, saying, "Don't worry, don't worry, that's just for show." <laughs> you know, where it's business as normal, and you can replicate that with the United States. You can replicate that with many, many um, you know countries. So that's the kind of complexity that I see. In in terms of this model. Mm. But first things first. I mean, there is a, there is a priority <laughs> with regard. Jonathan. Oh, I thought you wanted the Avenger. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I was pushing you lightly in that direction. Okay. But we have time yet, Linda, we'll tell you. Jonathan. I, cl I clearly don't go to the cinema often enough. <laughs> I find a quote from Citizen Kane, uh. as befits my age, before the end of thing. I mean, what Linda says is absolutely, obviously, absolutely correct, I, except I would say a slight memo um, for some countries which have now become so dependent on their raw material exports mm. to China. I mean, the Australian dollar is a proxy mm. for Chinese growth, for instance. Yep. Brazil, I can't remember the exact number, it's in my book. The, the, the share of manufactured goods in Brazilian exports has fallen by about half over the last five, six, I can't remember, years. Mm. And that's precisely because of the ramp up of sales of iron ore and soybeans uh, to, 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 to China. Uh, so, you know, China does have this disproportionate importance, I think, for, for some economies. But for a lot of other economies, 
it's not that important. Mm. I mean, if you take this country, uh, you know, wonderful. When uh, the Chinese last delegation was here, it was announced for the third time that Britain was going to export some piglets to China. <laughs> not very many. It's the third time they've done this. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's, it's not that uh, vital or important. Um, although I mean, probably, you know, Tesco, uh, like Walmart, could not have done so well, and it's not doing so well now, uh, without uh, cheap Chinese goods uh, coming in. Uh, the answer, Lani, to is no, I don't think there's a, a geo uh, strategy, uh, simply for the reason that I said at the beginning mm. of my intervention that China is concerned with its domestic affairs primarily, and it doesn't want to get involved in any yeah. external entanglements that might make that difficult by forcing it to take sides. Mm. Um, I mean, again, you know, we we have this image of China with the PLA, 2.2 million people, uh, standing army, of clashes in the South China Sea, of China developing all these weapons, trying out a stealth bomb, a stealth fighter when uh, Robert Gates was in Beijing, etc., etc. All this makes good headlines, I say, as a journalist, uh, etc. But actually, China's projection of its power is very, very small indeed, and certainly nothing like even a medium-sized European power would have done uh, in the 19th century. Uh, just one thing, if I may, as a code of I know this is a deeply reactionary point of view, but uh, a lot of China's dealings with the rest of the world, particularly with, the, uh, with European countries, and particularly with this country, are based on <coughs> the century of humiliation when the wicked foreigners uh, brought China to its knees. Well, the foreigners were pretty wicked. Uh, read Robert Bicker's book, and you, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily like to spend a Saturday night with uh, the early British settlers in Shanghai. Um, but, or you might. Um, uh, but I think this is a myth, which, not a myth, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative that's been worked up. Uh, and it's really only come since Deng Xiaoping. It's a fairly recent thing. In fact, if China was humiliated uh, in the 19th century and the empire fell and then you had the nationalist period, it was largely China's internal doing. It was the Taiping rather than the Opium Wars would be my line there. But this has become an absolute narrative which you will hear all the time in China. And, of course, if you say what I've just said, that's only proof that uh, Britain is a deeply imperialist place to its core. Now, having proved that... Um uh, and I do find the, 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 the comments here from the, from the whole panel fascinating, also in the sense that perhaps it is true that not having a grand strategy that engages at least at the political level with the rest of the world in, is in itself a strategy. I mean, it's a strategy yeah. of growth of a certain kind. It might be an untypical strategy, and it's certainly not a strategy that will project China into a superpower status over the next generation, but there is some thinking going on there in terms of how China would fit in, going back to some of, of what Jonathan said in his, first, uh, in his first remarks. Let us open up for questions from the audience. I'll take three or so in, in, one, in one go. And please ask a question of one member of the panel, because if not, we won't get anything done here tonight. Yes, please, sir, at the back. Oh, thank you. Um, I suppose I've got to address this to Jonathan, but it, I, it, it goes to everybody. Um, um, I travel to China quite frequently. I've got a Chinese son-in-law, many Chinese friends, both here in, in China. We've talked a lot about China. It's actually the People's Republic of China, and it's the People's Liberation Army, and the renminbi is the people's currency. And I think we overlook the people. And uh, my view is uh, uh, that China does have a foreign policy, which is not to rock the boat. Um, Jin Li-kun was in this country recently, and he said, look, 
It's very difficult when you're trying to invest $300 billion around the world. And he said, it's not my money. He said, it's not the Chinese government's money. It's the Chinese people's money. And he's, he, he said it as if he meant it, that our objective is not to t in get involved in politics. We just want a good, fair return for our investment. People read into China's motives very deep um, and subtle, although uh, Jonathan didn't. I mean, I, I mm. totally agree with you. I think their strategy is not to rock the boat. Mm. Thank One you. final thing. Yeah, very, very briefly now. Yeah. We've ignored the, the, the unique thing about China, which is the Chinese people's personality, the work ethic, the enthusiasm, the dedication, the commitment, the competitiveness of everything. It is either frightening or awesome, depending where you're coming from. Certainly, it's impressive. Uh, there's one question over here, please. I'll take one up at the back as well. Final question for this round. Yes, please, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, th thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan uh, mentioned the weakness of the foreign ministry, but uh, as we're looking at strategy, uh, could uh, he or other members of the panel talk about the, the international policy of other bits of the Chinese government? Uh, so, for instance, uh, the NDRC has yep. its own agenda and it has mm -hmm. a, a, probably a lot more power than the foreign ministry. And equally, there are Im very important areas in intellectual property, which nobody's addressed yet, sure. uh, which the Ministry of Science and Technology are looking at. Mm -hmm. And we have the, bit, the big mega projects that were launched under the, the period of the current government. Uh, one's not sure where, where they'll go in uh, the next period. But uh, there do, the do seem to be long-term aims. And it would be interesting to see uh, what some of those are. Lots of long-term long -term aims, but maybe in conflict with each other is what you're indicating. Yes, sir, mm. at the back of that. Hi. Um, I have a question for Mr. Um, Fenby. Do you, do you think that perhaps China doesn't have a, a, a concrete po uh, foreign policy simply as the West does, maybe, because uh, China doesn't have this missionarying or kind of uh, missionary uh, sense of the world uh, as the West does, it wants to preach first Christianity, now liberal uh, democracy. Maybe China doesn't have this kind of spirit as the West does, and that's why it doesn't have a foreign policy in concrete. China's business is business. That's what they used to say about the United States, actually, not that long ago. Jonathan, many of these were to you. I, I, I let everyone well, that, uh, chip in on it, but you, you start, yeah. Well, no, certainly just to start at the end, that, that's so. I mean, we, we were used to, uh, I mean, Okay, there's a lot of hypocrisy, of course, always in this. Uh, but, you know, the British Empire, the idea of spreading, well, of course, it wasn't actually like that, but spreading uh, liberalism and free, tra or free trade, certainly. You had the American kind of evangelicalism after, particularly after 1945, around the world. As I say, I take all this with, you know, the proper dose of salt. China doesn't uh, have that. And, I mean, we've talked about soft power and guy, you know, saying how many non-Chinese actually want to go and live uh, in China. They want to go there perhaps to make money, but uh, really to live China. Um, there are, there's no kind of compelling China story, I don't think, whereas there was from the West, even though it was, I say, quite hypocritical and uh, uh, used for uh, uh, other, other means. But China doesn't have that kind of missionary deal. And to go to the, the, the first question, precisely because it doesn't want to rock the world boat. I mean, Deng Xiaoping, <coughs> the equation of cheap labor, cheap capital, and benign external markets that would uh, welcome your goods, 
The third was absolutely essential to counterbalance weak domestic demand. And as Deng said, you know, for goodness sake, keep your head down and don't make any trouble until we've, we've, got, we've achieved our economic aims. And that is less so now. But as I think we've seen in, uh, I gave the example of the South China Sea, uh, you know, in the end, economic rationalism, to use uh, Guy's word, uh, does come into uh, play. And perhaps it is a good thing that China doesn't have a coherent foreign policy. It's just, and perhaps it's a fault of us in the West that we've been brought up to think that a great power should have a clear view of the world and um, clear uh, things uh, to follow. And indeed, as I said, there are lots of different parts of the government. There are provinces which set up, which set up trade missions all over the place. Uh, there are uh, the, the, the NDRC was mentioned. There's the Ministry of Commerce too. There's the whole energy side ministry that the state-owned enterprises, who Guy referred to, who are going out in search of resources, but also of margins, which they can't get at home, to buy abroad. You've got all this conflicting stuff going on. Uh, and I don't think, I mean, China is a dictatorship without a dictator, in a sense, uh, unless the party is the dictator. Um, but uh, it, all that leads to a certain degree of confusion and coherence. But maybe that's just as well. If China was so sleek and efficient as its admirers think, uh, we really would have to worry. Oh, I think we need to worry a little bit. We need to worry a little bit. <laughs> a little worry, will you, good. I'm being fully Irish. Actually, I, I, I'm curious in terms of... Um, I want you to do a little impromptu poll, if the chair will indulge me, um, which is I see a number of you here who are probably ethnically Chinese and a number of you who are not, but please, both of you, Feel free to, to raise your hand when I ask this. Um, how many of you plan to go and work in China in the future? Hmm? Yeah, and I... It's not significant group. Yeah, and I suppose, no. um, I think that for me um, is... I mean, one of, I mean, as an economist, you look at a lot of factors for what drives a country. And one thing China doesn't suffer from is what often happens to developing countries, which is the brain drain. Mm. Uh, lots of my students want to go back to China. Mm. There is a narrative there that attracts them. Um, perhaps it's just naked materialism, as a guy mm. has pointed to. But I think there's something deeper there as well. There is a sense of history. There's a sense of, um, there's a sense of identity, of nationalism. And for those of you who are not Chinese, there's another narrative there drawing you uh, there as well. Um, so I suppose, um, you know, I, I don't know at what point a country's uh, narrative becomes a global story. Hmm. And I suppose that's when perhaps the American dream might have a version that competes against it, um, which is uh, what the Chinese uh, aims and future might be. But the Chinese have a very long history, yep. and I would never count uh, against that narrative becoming part of the global picture. Mm -hmm. um, and let me just say a bit on the long-term aims very quickly, which is, yes, I think uh, lots of ministries have long-term aims, and unfortunately, they're not all consistent. <laughs> so many of them have 5, 10, 20, 30-year plans. Um, and one of the hard things about China now is that you've got very liberal reformists, like the PBOC, the Chinese mm -hmm. Central Bank, uh, 
out there, they've got a 10-year mm. plan to internationalize the renminbi, <laughs> mm. and it's a pretty aggressive plan. And then you've got other elements which are pushing against that. Um, so if you look at each of these uh, different ministries that you may have mentioned, MIST, NDRC, MOF, MOF SAFE, uh, PBOC, uh, State Council, DRC, they all have different plans. And so one of the challenges for China is that it's now gotten to a certain stage of development where a better governance system has to be put in place to reconcile some of those aims Absolutely. because you often get conf you know conflicting statements about where policy is or is not attended and you also have roadblocks from those very same mm. ministries preventing reforms going forward. It's actually what mm. economists of uh, who study Chinese growth call yeah. the easy to hard reform sequence. Sure. The harder stuff is now coming up mm. in part because of this. And then just very quickly on Jinming, mm. uh, the people. Um, Yes, I think my first sort of point kind of uh, picked up some of, some of the points about um, the people. But I'm just going to say I, I was once asked a question about what the people, you know, what sort of the real movers and shakers of China thought. Mm. And, and I started to relate a story about, well, my generation was very much affected by mm. Tiananmen Square. And then one of my students raised his hand and said, yeah, I didn't really mean your generation. I mean the young movers and shakers. You know? <laughs> so I don't really know what the people think. <laughs> Now, on this point of, of um, China's main problem being poor governance, I mean, you can see a couple of very interesting pieces in this report, just to plug that again, on, on that being one of the, or maybe the key issue uh, in terms of dealing with the immediate future. But just before turning over to you, I'm, what we seem to have here, though, is an emphasis which both comes from the audience and from up here on China being in some way special because of its low-key approach to international affairs. But of course, you know, I'm not an IR scholar, I'm a true, true historian, as many here will know. But to do an, an international relations point, a lot of rising powers in history have had exactly that approach to how they deal with international affairs. I mean, the United States in the late 19th century and early 20th century mm -hmm acted in ways that are not entirely different from what we see China doing now. I mean, of all people, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the inventor of the term, speak softly and carry, in a, carry a big stake. So is there something here about China that is special, no, or is this something about rising powers? You're, you're right, of course, and uh, had it not really been for, for the First World War, America might have stayed looking inwards for much longer. And I did start off my remarks by talking about Japan. Mm. And Japan has shrunk yes. hugely from any, um, anywhere to, to a greater extent than China, in fact. Uh, but then, of course, the difference is that um, mm. uh, Japan grew up under an American umbrella. America was mm. its tutor. America designed its constitution. Mm. I mean, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a pupil. Might I just use, uh, rather than, because most of sure. I think the other points of I just want to pick up on Linda's point about the going out mm -hmm. and, and, and the FDI strategy. Um, and just take a slightly take issue with some of the things you said. Um, I think the situation that China is in today in terms of going out is fundamentally and totally different from Japan's situation when it began doing so on a large scale uh, after the Yen Shoku in 1985, the Plaza Agreement. Yen went through the roof. Chi um, Japanese companies had to move stuff offshore very fast to, to remain competitive. But the vast majority of Japanese FDI was in the form of greenfield sites. Mm. Uh, they came in and they built new uh, plants. Now, this is, there's a couple of instances I can think of with China where they've done that. There's a motor plant that's going to go up in Bulgaria. But Sao Paulo. 
Sorry? Sao Paulo. Oh, Sao Paulo. Yeah, there are some, but the majority, and, and what they talk about, is yeah. mergers and acquisitions. They want mm. to buy things. Um, the second big difference is when Japan... Japan had fundamentally reinvented manufacturing. Mm. It had actually um, reinvented management, mm -hmm. and it had huge strength in depth in very, very important technologies, process technologies, raw uh, material technologies, I don't mean raw materials, but materials mm. technologies. China doesn't have that. China is a mm. demandeur. Mm. It's buying this stuff because it doesn't have it. And um, when the Japanese started buying stuff, they made some terrible mistakes. Remember mm. Sony in Hollywood, mm. Rockefeller, Rockefeller Plaza, Plaza, trophy acquisitions. and. There were a lot of cultural problems as well between Japanese management and non, you know, the local uh, employees uh, in certain parts of the world. Um, not actually in, in in this country so much. Um, and indeed, you know, TCL, which you mentioned, has been an unmitigated catastrophe. They closed it down. Um, I met the head of TCL once, and he was so this is the biggest mistake we ever met. And he said, basically, for us, going out is um, global um, global R and. Uh, R&D on globalization, because yeah. he, he was very candid. We really don't know that much about the world, and we're learning. And it, 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 China is in that position. Um, it also, I mean, it'd be very interesting to see how the US and um, Europe react if Chinese um, acquisitions really get big. I mean, they're pretty small at the moment. It's, it's small beer in terms of the total of yeah. Um, will we have a, a repeat of the that seminal moment when uh, uh, Sinok, the Chinese oil company, uh, made a hostile bid for uh, Unical? Um, there will be lobbies, as there were, and say that was a lobbying thing. It was it was uh, the disappointed bidder Chevron who basically pulled the cash uh, register and paid money into Congressman's campaign funds to stop it. Um, Supposing the Chinese decided they were going to make a bid for Danone in France, mm. can you imagine the reaction to that? <laughs> Ooh la la! Yeah. The other way around. I, 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 I'll, I'll get back to you. I want to take some more. Quite, you, you will let respond a, to yeah, this. Let me make a quick. A bit, I, yeah, it's not very a, quick. Yeah, yeah. It's not. A, I think to be clear, it's not a comparison between China and Japan. It's the similarity between Japan, South Korea, Singapore and Taiwan, the ability to have companies that can compete globally. So yeah. of course, um, catching up in the 2000s is different than catching up in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And you know, it's not, and you mentioned lots of Japan's unmitigated failures. Mm. China's had tons of failures. So Lenovo's acquisition didn't go yeah. well either. However, the process, mm. the intent to create multinational corporations is a deliberate policy and they're willing to put their reserves and their funding behind it. Mm. And you can't, you, there aren't, there isn't that kind of strategy coming from lots of developing countries. Mm. I mean, there's just not that many. <clears throat> Think about the brands that you know, and many of them don't come from the developing world. And the fact that China is in a position where outward FDI could actually outweigh inward FDI is normally viewed by economists as a turning point in a country's development. Mm. So. Of course, no one has invested in IBM over the last 40 years, so acquired anything from <laughs> that have really done well. But that's one of the basic facts of, of how the Western economy does, and very little to do with China. I'll take a few more very quick questions. Yes, in the middle over here first. Anyone upstairs? Yes, please. I will take one at the front as well. Mm -mm. 
Very quick questions now, please, and directed to one of the members of the panel. Uh, yeah, why don't you go first? That's right. Should be on. There we go. Sorry. Please. Um, thank you. Uh, my question is for uh, Dr. Yue. Just now you mentioned the, the uh, conflicting agendas between different government agencies, and you mentioned the, the issue of uh, renminbi internationalization. I think another important issue is on the um, SOE reform. Um, in World Bank report that uh, they mentioned, they proposed the uh, further ownership diversification, but it's um, um, it's not agreed by the. SASAC, which is responsible for uh, the SOEs. And so my question is that, um, what's your opinion on the um, next step of SOE reform? Uh, should the government uh, divest, um, divest their in, uh, stakes in the SOEs, or should the government keep control of the large SOEs? Thank you. Good question. I particularly like the angle that question comes from. Yes, sir, in the middle there. I'm wondering about the effects of China's geoeconomic strategy, if it has one. I mean, when the USA was rising through the ranks, their kind of economic policy also kind of went around the world. You'd have uh, other countries following their really hardcore capitalism. Hmm. I'm just wondering, as China grows in its weight, will other countries, maybe perhaps in Africa, also follow China's model as you know, their strategy hmm. kind of goes wider? Hmm. Or is there indeed a Chinese hmm. model that they will follow if they can follow it? Hmm. Uh, right to the front over here. You have a mic? Yeah, good. Please. Linda, I'm happy to see you. And I have a question. Um, as I understood, China now doesn't have an um, economic uh, strategy. But if they had this strategy, how could you see the Chinese position, China's position in the world? Because nowadays they invest to a lot of uh, main sectors in the world. So, thank you. What would be the order? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to you in, in, in sort of in, in reverse order. I start with start with Jonathan. And now, please also. Uh, is there anything you want to respond to from what's been said up here in the panel? Please, please do, mm -hmm. Jonathan. Well, I'm sure we could go on. God, uh, what, what, 60 seconds or so. Um, the question yeah, of, of Chinese. <laughs> the, the, two things come up. The question of Chinese brands and the rest of the world. You know, it's familiar to say China doesn't have any world brands. Well, actually, China has very few Chinese brands mm. either. If you look, yeah. uh, the internal ch domestic market in China is incredible. I mean, China is. You know, that's hence the title of my book. It's the great. He tiger head, but look at the snake tails down below. Uh, regionalization in all kinds of things uh, uh, throughout China. So, you know, first of all, you've got to do some national uh, brands at home. Uh, as for buying, uh, the follow-up guy was saying, foreign technologies, I mean, I think that's very clear. Though, you know, why did China buy Volvo? It didn't buy it to produce cars with the Swedish unions. Uh, it bought it for the technology eventually. And I met a little while ago um, a man who runs a big uh, medical equipment company uh, in uh, just outside Shenzhen. And he was just in Europe to buy companies, close them down, and move the technology back to China. You know, it's fairly yeah. clear, uh, crude. Uh, 
outsource, whatever we call it, it's not just outsourcing, it's moving technology. Uh, and that's the case, because you know, China's got a, it's come a huge way in the last 30 years, but it's got a huge way to go if it's going to move up the value chain and do all the things that it wants. Um, on the question of uh, reform, SOE reform, uh, that will be, I think, despite Linda's report and all the good, very sensible words from the World Bank, this is a very, very long-term process. And Xi Jinping, who will take over as China's leader at the end of this year, is a cautious consensus politician who will wait till he sees that there's enough wind in the reform sails before doing anything. You'll have small incremental reforms at local level. Uh, I've interestingly, I found myself pulled in as the useful foreigner who can be denied uh, to write for various Chinese state newspapers papers about why they must have less state and more reform. I don't expect to have a lot of effect uh, immediately. Um, as for uh, the PRC effect, the China model, you remember the Beijing consensus, all that for Duddle a few years ago and so on. Uh, though China hasn't got a model that anybody else can follow because there's no other China. There's no other country in this particular uh, position which China found itself in at the late 1970s and with the political drive and discipline which Deng Xiaoping brought to that task. Um, I just don't think you can do China on a bigger scale and just to finish with equally much, I mean China has its own model which it would like to follow which is Singapore but unfortunately it has about 300 times as many people as Singapore so it's, it's a bit difficult. No, certainly true. Linda, you have a number of, of questions to answer, but I throw in one more, because it's been around the issues that we've been dealing with here quite a bit and will be even more so uh, for the summer and fall. Do you think the changes in terms of the leadership that will be going on later this year uh, and early next year will have an effect in terms of China's geoeconomic strategy mm -hmm. or thinking about geoeconomic strategies? I mean, John was sort of indicating that it probably wouldn't because the new guys who are coming in are at least as cautious as those going out. But what's your what's your sense? Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. Um, I think if you look at where China is now committed for the next five years, the 12 five-year plan started last year, and it has the input of Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. So when I was in Beijing, um, every, uh, every conversation I had um, involved Li Keqiang things. Nobody mentioned uh, Wen Jiabao. <laughs> and uh, to me, that kind of said it all in terms of where we'll least till 2015, I think the, the plan will go. And certainly, I don't expect the fifth generation to be radically different in terms of the way uh, that they would approach um, a lot of the immediate economic um, development. And actually, speaking of Xi Jinping, I understand he's a fan of Wenzhou, which actually brings me to the top question here, uh, that Wenzhou model. And also of American war movies. You should have got a quote in from one of those. <laughs> Uh, you know, something in common. And so, you know, addressing this sort of question, which is, um, I sort of think the fate of the SOEs were decided um, at the very start of the reform period when China rejected the Wenzhou model, which is a private enterprise-based model, and actually went for uh, ownership, basically it was called reform without ownership change. So it's this idea that you can preserve communal property but incentivize output on top of it through improving uh, bonuses and wages and payments. Now, of course, over the past 30 years, the SOEs have shrunk. In fact, in a matter of the mid-90s, it went from 10 million SOE state-owned enterprises down to about a couple hundred thousand. But those couple hundred thousand are pretty ingrained. Mm -hmm. So what I think they should do is to reform the state-owned enterprises, which have, uh, based on my research and others, lower return on equity, lower productivity, lower amounts of spending in R&D, lower innovation, lower, fa you know, it just goes on and on and on. But they don't serve just one purpose. They're there to serve a social security function in terms
terms of preserving employment, mm. but I also think they are there because you have political interests which mm. are entrenched in maintaining them. So the way it should be done is that unless a firm is a natural monopoly, it really shouldn't be publicly owned. And then China has on top of that the legacy problems of funding these state-owned enterprises through state-owned banks, which has always been a source of macroeconomic instability. However, when I do raise this in China, sometimes what the response I get in return is, but France thinks that dairy is a strategic industry. Surely we can define whatever we like. And I don't really know where to go from that. Um, in terms of uh, the question in the middle about China being a model, um, you know, Jonathan mentioned the, the Beijing consensus. Now, I resisted for a very long time saying that China had a development model that could be replicated. And then uh, last year, on the uh, couple of years ago, on the 30th anniversary of, of China's uh, market-oriented reforms, you know, went to 2009, I contributed to a book called uh, China's Development Model, Lessons for Developing Countries, edited by Beijing University. <laughs> uh, and actually, I think I was the one, I was very, still very skeptical. I essentially said, I mean, the, the context of being a big, poor, developing country, which is a transition economy with central planning inherent in its system, meant that nobody in 1980 thought that China had a chance. Um, and now, to replicate that for other countries is extremely difficult. And I just don't necessarily see that. But that's not to say it doesn't hold an appeal because, in a sense, there's a backlash against the kind of Washington consensus yeah. models that had been foisted on developing countries um, for so long. And sorry, I'm rushing a little bit here because mm -hmm. I know we're short on time. Um, in terms of how do I see China's uh, place in the world, um, I've always had this uh, long-held, I suppose, hope that one day China would just be seen, um, loved and hated, just like any other country in the world. <laughs> Um, there's, you know, we talked a bit about perhaps there's China exceptionalism, perhaps there's American exceptionalism. Mm. But I suppose I see China as a country which has its, its good points, its bad points. There'll be things it does well, there'll be things it does poorly. And, um, but it should be thought of and discussed and analyzed in the same way that uh, we can mock Sarah Palin and admire um, <laughs> Why am I drawing a blank? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but uh, let me just finish by saying, I can't finish on that point. Let me just finish by saying, um, I agree with something that Guy said earlier, and your question about the role of where China sits and brings this to mind is that China's development, as I hinted a moment ago, is actually very unique in its own way, just as lots of countries are. So China's investments are based on what in the literature is described described as competitive disadvantage. Because it's state-funded and guided, they tend to buy and invest in things they're not particularly good at. Mm. And that is not what normally a country uh, firms do. They get good at something, and then they go and they, and they want to acquire it. But remember, China is still here in terms of the catch-up process. Mm. So it's trying to invest and bring in expertise in the areas in which it needs the most help. And that's where they're putting their resources, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully. But that is, in a sense, one of the unique parts of China. There's many, many others as well. But let me, let me leave it there. Thank you, Lila. That's, that's very, very useful. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, I'll start with your question first. How, how will China be viewed by the world uh, as it is today, schizophrenically? <laughs> People, <laughs> you can't be that big. And you cannot have as opaque a system of, of government as China has without yeah. people dividing into two camps, uh, as they do. If you, you know, we had a, a seminar at um, LSE about this a few months back, and you know, it's become 
the sort of uh, screen on which some people paint their worst fears and some people paint their, 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 their brightest hopes. Um, so I think that there won't ever be a single view, and it will also vary depending on you know, which country it's in. Um, the China model. Um, I'm not sure I know what the China model is, and I don't think the Chinese... In fact, you talk to Chinese, they say we don't have a model. It seems to me in many respects it's not a particularly original model economically. It follows very largely in the same steps as most of the Asian tigers, very well described by the gentleman in the other room, Paul Krugman, in a book that he wrote in, um, I think it was the sort of early 90s, pouring labor and cap cheap labor and capital into manufacturing, doing quite a bit of exporting, but not actually as much. It's not, exports are not as important to the Chinese economy as people say. It's an investment-driven economy to a greater extent than it is an export-driven economy. One of the differences for African countries is that China is part of the most, in my view, the most important fundamental event in world trade that's happened in the last 20 years, again as a result of the, uh, the yen shock, which is the development of global supply chains. Lots, you know, it's like an escalator, lots and lots and bits of components get carried into China from all over East Asia and increasingly other parts of the world, they get assembled there in China and then they're exported somewhere else. It's going to be harder for African countries um, to do that by virtue of uh, location, uh, by virtue of, of a whole lot of other, other things. But, you know, mm. let us not forget <coughs> that with the arguable exception of Japan, it is an arguable exception the great sort of development takeoff in all the East Asian tigers pretty much was undertaken under autocracies or dictatorships. Mm -hmm. The difference is that in every single other country you now have democracy, whereas in China you don't. And it seems to me that it's the politics in China that's really the distinctive feature of the model, not so much uh, the economics. Um, just a quick word on, on SOEs. I, I think that Linda touched an important point um, uh, that you know, what are now known widely in the discourse in China as the vested interests, um, both within the SOEs, but also those who uh, benefit politically in one way or another from the SOEs, are huge. There are, put it very bluntly, an awful lot of snouts in the trough. And if you try and remove that trough, I think you're going to hear some real, more than just squealing. There's going to be a lot of anger. And finally, the Wenzhou model seems to me the only question that matters about you know the Wenzhou model, which has been now identified by Wen and, and she as, as you know the sort of interesting experiment theory is. You know, it's been going on in Wenzhou for 200 years. It hasn't happened anywhere else in China. So the question is, can it actually be transferred to the rest of the country? And well, that's an open question. Thank you very much, Guy. Now, China may not have a geoeconomic strategy. I think it's the conclusion that we are drawing from up here, or at least not yet. But what is certain is that whatever it does, and whatever direction it moves in, it will influence the rest of the world and influence it in a way that no one could have foreseen only a decade ago. That's the real significance of China to me, and I think to the panel as well, in terms of 
its, uh, its international affairs in a broad sense. Uh, you can read more about it in the LSE Ideas report that's just come out, China's Geoeconomic Strategy. Do pick it up outside where it is for sale. Uh, it's the first report of this kind that we have done in uh, Ideas uh, East Asia International <laughs> Affairs Program. It certainly won't be the last. There are more of these coming dealing with different aspects of China's rise, so watch out for those. I want to thank uh, Guy, Linda, and Jonathan for excellent presentations, excellent debate today. I'm very, very grateful that you could come.